This morning's reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Page 691, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Do please keep that passage open, um, and uh, that's where we're going to be for the next um, few minutes. Why don't I pray as we begin? Heavenly Father, our prayer now is that uh, in the written word and through the spoken word, we may hear and see the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his glory. Amen. Many of you will recognize and remember the name Charles Colson, founder of Prison Fellowship. He was one of my legal heroes. I met him several times here in London. And when he died in 2012, he was one of the most highly regarded, passionate, thoughtful Christian people in American public life, with 15 honorary doctorates, a Templeton Prize, the Presidential Citizens Medal, and about 30 books behind him. It had not always been so. At 38, he left legal practice to become special counsel to President Richard Nixon. He was known as the White House Hatchet Man. And he got caught up, as you remember, in Watergate, eventually serving seven months in 1974 for obstruction of justice. And in the middle of all that scandal, in the summer of 1973, encouraged by a friend, gripped by C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity, longing for some resolution in his own life, he trusted Christ and became a Christian. Listen to his account of the moment. That night, he writes... I was confronted with my own sin. Not just Watergate's dirty tricks, but the sin deep within me. The hidden evil 
that lives in every human heart. It was painful, uh, and I could not escape. I cried out to God and found myself drawn irresistibly into his waiting arms. That was the night I gave my life to Jesus Christ and began the greatest adventure of my life. Well, that story has been told often and well, and indeed on the book table at the side, there are some copies of Coulson's excellent book, which I commend to you. Less well-known is perhaps a later moment when he was in a period of spiritual dryness. Now, if you're a Christian and you're in one of those, don't despair. Take heart. More saints than you realize have had life-changing encounters with God in desert places. Another friend at that time suggested to Coulson that he watch some videos by the late R.C. Sproul. And Coulson felt impatient. These were videos on the holiness of God. What, that was theologian stuff. What had that to do with the battles he was fighting? But he agreed. And here's what he said at the end of the sixth lecture. I was on my knees, deep in prayer, in awe of God's absolute holiness... It was a life-changing experience as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God I believe in and worship. My spiritual drought ended, but this taste for the majesty of God only made me thirst for more of him. Well, there's something gripping, isn't there, about spiritual biography? What is it that keeps someone like Chuck Colson at the top of his game in Christian service for the next 39 years? What was it that made a young, educated, well-connected man like Isaiah stick at being a prophet of God, one of the greatest, through thick and thin for about 40 years? becoming one of the most influential teachers of all time. And here we are in London in 2019, reflecting on his very words three millennia later. We want to know, don't we, what God does to prepare people, us, to go the distance, to count, to amount to something spiritually. We want to know it matters, that it's significant, that it's all worth it. In short, we want to know and meet God deep in our beings, don't we? And remarkably, as Coulson and Isaiah's experience suggests, it has something to do with the heart, with getting hold of what Coulson called the majesty of God in a profound vision-transforming, paradigm-shifting sort of way. In short, seeing him as he really is. Well, Isaiah helps us here as he shares his vision in chapter 6. Here is reality. It's a very familiar passage, but let's look at it together. Look first at what he saw. Four things to note. One, the throne was occupied. Verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. Isaiah sets this experience in history. It's 740 BC, the king is dead or dying. He's in a leprosy isolation hospital after a largely successful, though ultimately compromised reign. 
and Judah's under political pressure. These felt uncertain, even traumatic times in which people had lost their bearing, lost a sense of direction, uh, and there was everywhere national anxiety about the future. And there was insecurity in the present. Know the feeling? And the pundits were no doubt saying, ah, the throne must soon be filled. Well, what Isaiah saw that day in the temple was a vision of reality. The throne was occupied. It's filled by God himself. Uzziah may be dead or dying, but God is alive. The old king is gone, the real king remains. Psalm 90 verse 2 puts it, he's God from everlasting to everlasting. He was the living God when this world came into existence. He'll be living a million years from now when every puny pot shot against his reign is long forgotten. There's not a single head of state or world leader who'll be around in 50 years. In 110 years, this planet will be peopled by 10 billion brand new people. And every one of us, like Uzziah, will be gone. But not God. He's there. He's alive. He's also sovereign because he's on the throne. What Isaiah sees is a king. As the Apostle John records in Revelation 4.2, there's a throne at the very heart of all reality. And there's someone sitting on it. So there's, there's no crisis, there's no panic, there's no omnishambles. God is not at his wit's end about our world or our church or our situation. He sits on a throne and that throne room is forever occupied and that comforts me. And he rules over the good and the bad and the ugly. And everything is worked out, and everything is under control, and everything that happens has a meaning, whether we see it or not at the time. And that throne is the seat of all reality, God's right to rule the world. You see, we we don't give God authority over our lives. He has it whether we like it or not. And Isaiah learnt that this day. Few things are more humbling or more important for us to get hold of or to give us a sense of who we are than the raw majesty of God and the truth that he is utterly sovereign. He's the legislature, the executive, the supreme court, the chief exec, The buck stops with him. And that steadies us. Steadies us, doesn't it? It also makes us feel small. It's meant to. In Isaiah's writing, you never find him talking about himself. From this moment, he moves off center stage. He's not important. He's secondary, an instrument, a channel. The throne is occupied. And then second, the temple is filled. Verse 1, the train of his robe filled the temple. You see, in God's temple, there's only room for God. 
And God is the only God. And as the Apostle John uh, explained in John 12, 41, what Isaiah saw that day was Jesus' glory. And they're one. Isaiah 43, verse 11, apart from me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 44, verse 6, apart from me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, verse 21, there is none but me. Well, Isaiah learned that lesson profoundly here. He saw the God who fills the stage. 750 years before Jesus was sent, and was to send his disciples out to the whole world with the gospel, here is Isaiah learning that the God they worship in Jerusalem is the God of the whole earth, and the whole earth is full of his glory. So God's not only alive, sovereign, he's omnipotent because this throne is high and exalted. And the train of this king's robe, like the dress of a bride standing on the chancel here in church, is lavish in splendor. Not remote from earthly things, no, filling the temple. And even end of verse 3, filling the whole rich abundance of the created order. As Calvin put it, the world is the theater of God's glory. Daniel 4.35 reminds us he does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand. To be gripped by the omnipotence of God, writes John Piper, is either marvelous for he's for us or terrifying because he is against us. Indifference to his omnipotence simply means we haven't seen it for what it is. The throne is occupied. The temple is filled. Third, the seraphim are worshipping. Verses 2 and 3. Well, these six-winged creatures make their only appearance in the, in, in the Bible here. And you see they're six-winged creatures with feet and eyes and voices and insight. Holy in their own right, they make their sole appearance in Scripture here, and they attend God in his magnificence. The throne room is a busy place, buzzing with worship and service. But do you see their posture? Quite interesting to note that. Even these heavenly consorts, untainted by sin, have to yield their eyes, shield their eyes from a direct gaze on the face of God and not leave their feet exposed in his presence. So they hover on two wings, ready for everything that God has for them. They blot themselves out of the picture because he is everything, all in all. They are models of self-effacement and readiness to serve. They revere God, and they know that they are themselves completely unworthy to serve him. God is greater than they or we can begin to imagine. And these creatures strain at the lease of language, don't they? To say that God alone is God. He's not like us, only sort of bigger and nicer. He's in a different category. He's holy, absolutely pure. Holy good, perfectly beautiful, impeccably righteous, just 
gracious, compassionate. And, you know, in Hebrew, saying something three times is not just repetition, it's emphasis. We're familiar with that sort of Hebrew doubling up, king of kings, lord of lords. But when Hebrew says something three times, it's what Alec Motir calls a super superlative. Language runs out. And here's the only characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession in this way in the Bible. Isaiah calls God holy over 30 times in his writings. He speaks to what will, that will mean for justice and relationships. He unpacks all that. Here's where he learned it. In the temple that day. God's holiness is his very nature. His godness, if you like. His intrinsic, infinite, transcendent purity and worth. It's who he is. The two occasions when we hear what angels are saying in Scripture are separated by 800 years, here and in Revelation chapter 4. But they're saying exactly the same things in both places. So overwhelmed are they by the staggering holiness of God. And presumably they've been saying it ever since, and they're saying it right now. And God's glory, why that simply means his holiness gone public. So the throne is occupied, the temple is filled, the seraphim are worshipping. There's another point, four, the foundations are shaking, verse four. Friends, that's what happens when God's holiness is recognized, really recognized. He's holy, and since we're decidedly not, any way we look at it is inherently unsettling. And even to declare that holiness has implications. Doors collapse. Thresholds shake. Access is lost. Visibility is choked in smoke. And that happens in creation. What what does it do to somebody like me? Well, you see, when you see what God is really like, it shakes you to your very foundations. And indeed, it may even throw you to the ground. Because you begin to see God as he really is and yourself as you really are. And that can shake you to the core. So that's what Isaiah saw. But I want to move on to what he experienced. Verse 5. Look at his reaction. Woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You know, we joke, woe is me. We, we, We joke about that, but there's nothing light here in his reaction. He says he's literally unraveling or disintegrating. Here is one of the most talented people around. He's signed up as a prophet. He's talked the talk. He's been born with a silver spoon. And yet just one glimpse of God and he suddenly feels a bit of a wretch in his own eyes and he feels that his life is nowhere and he pronounces judgment on himself. To sum up his reaction in a word, it's consternation. Consternation. And you see, that's what happens when you truly meet God because you begin to get to the truth about yourself and we're not good at that these days. 
It's much easier, frankly, to compare ourselves to one another. By that standard, we're probably not bad. But in the presence of God, degrees of sin somehow become irrelevant. It's never them and us, it's just us. And there's no such thing as a small sin against a holy God. Look, if you've never looked inside and at times hated yourself or thought that some aspect of the real you is frankly pretty loathsome or recognized that inside you're what C.S. Lewis calls somewhere a bit of a legion of lusts, you're probably not a Christian at all. And, you know, that's not neurotic or morbid. It's realistic and healthy because it talks about how you're relating to God. Now, what were Isaiah's unclean lips? We don't know exactly. Was it profanity of some sort? I smiled recently when I read that Meghan Markle apparently wants to, the Duchess of Sussex, apparently wants to stop biting her nails and swearing. God's name, too holy for Isaiah's contemporaries, even to sound out as a swear word we each hear a hundred times a day hurts, doesn't it, if you love that name, to hear it used in that way? Or, or was, was Isaiah's problem maybe more likely the Christian communicator's problem? Vanity, feeling a little bit too pleased with yourself, wanting to be noticed and appreciated and a little bit too concerned with your own reputation and not the glory of God. Christian communicators can have murky motives and unclean lips. Believe me, I know. Lips express the heart. And that's why they matter. Well, whatever it is, one taste of God's purity has made a realist of him. And measured against that, he feels morally and spiritually, well, annihilated and he knows he's not alone he's surrounded by people in exactly the same boat and we're in that boat too three millennia on nothing has changed but that can be a good place to be as our last point demonstrates what he saw what he experienced and finally as I end what he received verses 6 to 8 because there's amazing grace here In the heart of an Old Testament crisis, 750 years before Christ. However profound a person's sin may be, grace is greater still. Do do, do you get a hint of the rush of the speed of the seraphim there in verse 6? Flying in. You know, we talk about somebody flying in for a meeting, some important way. Here are the seraphim flying in. It reminded me of that lovely image in the um, story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, of the father seeing the returning son and running out to meet him. It's a good Father's Day picture, isn't it? Have you ever pictured, if I may speak reverently, God at speed, God running? When does God move fast? What makes him run? To meet with human beings whenever he hears the words, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and am no longer worthy to be called your child. 
God means business with us the moment we speak that truth about our own hearts. And he knows everything about us anyway. And he sees through our cultivated veneer of righteousness and all our phoniness and all the rest. We're utterly transparent to him. And he sees the number and depth of our sin and he still loves us. And one moment of recognition of our rebellion against him and why he's running down the street to hug us as a receiving father. It's a wonderful thing. Well, a seraph, verse 6, takes a living coal with tongs from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips, the very place of felt need. And he says, verse 7, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Ah, the relief of knowing that guilt is dealt with. My, I wish some of my customers in court could know and experience that if I'm passing a sentence or something on them. Have you experienced that yet? Have you experienced that relief from guilt? Here in a couple of Old Testament verses is almost everything that needs to be known about God's rescue plan for human beings, for us. Here in the title of John Murray's little classic book is Redemption Accomplished and Applied. There's the language of sacrifice, of substitution. Coal comes from the altar, the place of sacrifice, the place of meeting. And the altar was where the lamb was offered to God for sin. The fire that symbolized God's judgment consumed the creature. And people somehow felt in those sacrifices their sin had been put away. It had been dealt with and covered until the next time. Until that thrilling day when John the Baptist pointed out to Jesus, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. So there's the language of sacrifice. There's also the language of personal response. Do you see that? It's very personal. He flew, he flew to me. He touched my mouth. And then there are the three yours at the end of verse 7. Five personal applications in, in just a few verses. That's the way of it with the Bible. One sheep, one coin, one son. God values you and me individually. That's the wonder of it all. Values us enough to relate to us personally. And then finally there's the language of willing service. Verse 8. God speaks himself for the very first time in the passage. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah answers, here am I, send me. The forgiven sinner offers himself as the message boy. The man cleansed of the dirty mouth is commissioned as God's spokesman. And that's how it is. The gospel overhauls sinful people like us for service to further God's agenda whatever the times we live in and however difficult or oppositional things may be. Glance on if you're still with me to page 745 Isaiah 57 745 Isaiah 57 verse 15 second part of the verse 
Where does God live today? Answer, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah learned all that on the steps of the uh, temple. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, will you reflect seriously, please, on the God you're choosing to ignore or sideline? Honestly, given who he is, is that realistic or wise? And if you are a Christian and you're feeling a bit like Charles Colson was, personally dry, do, do, do you need some 2019 revival in your spirit? Are you anxious about where we're going in the Church of England? It's Michael's Chester Square, in Brexit, politics, world events. Do you long to have the passion to go the distance in guilt-free, joy-infused Christian service to be useful to God until you drop? Well, the clues are in our passage. Who we see, what we experience, what we receive, who God is, really is, who we are, really are, what redeeming grace does for us, really does. Someday God, who will never leave his throne, will blow away every competing glory and make his holiness known in unsurpassed splendor to every creature. Now, I may be, I know I am, a pretty feeble believer in a thousand respects. But I also know, more than anything else, that I want to be a part of that great story. Let's pray as we close.